the disturbing scene doesn't feel like the coronation of a king. But that's exactly what happened. And as I was thinking about this passage this week, I was thinking about the protocols that are involved when you meet royalty. When you can arrive to the event, where you can sit, when you can sit, when you have to stand, don't touch, wait to be spoken to. There are long, long lists when people engage with royalty. And the problem is, as I found out, that the lists change depending on what country and what kind of royalty you're talking about. And so, in culture to culture. But one of the things that's common to all is a sense of respect, of honor. You don't treat kings and queens or their families as if they were, well, you and me. We don't get to do that with royalty. And that's a hard concept for us as Americans to kind of wrap our heads around, right? You know, we, we don't do monarchies here. But given the lack of respect and just plain common courtesy today, maybe we could learn a thing or two. But as we think about royals today, royals don't have much power, right? They're, they're pretty much ceremonial. But in Jesus' day, a king mattered a lot. In fact, for most of human history, a king matters. Actions have consequences, and what we just saw here in the first 16 verses of John 19 is the confrontation of a king of power. The king of the universe confronted by rebellious subjects, and it is the final act in the farce that has been the trials of Jesus that have been illegal and trumped up, dishonest. And in this scene that we just saw before Pilate, we see something really important, something that we can lose in the horror of the scene. And that is that when we are confronted by King Jesus, he will always lay us bare. You see, he's a kingly presence even when he's bound and bloodied and bruised in a trial. Ultimately, Jesus demands a response because you don't get to ignore a king. You just don't. And as we've seen over and over again in John's gospel, there's a problem. Because while Jesus can't be ignored on the one hand, that doesn't mean he's accepted on the other. And in fact, what we see in this scene that we just watched it, as we read in, in John 19 is that the demands of King Jesus tend to make sinful people react sinfully because he demands on us all things that we don't want. And we see it in this final trial. 
this final act of the trial in, in three different groups of people this morning. So, as we come to today's passage, as we come to this, this ultimate ending of the trials, I want us to think through the reactions to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that we are able to gather here today as a church, that we are able to worship you and proclaim your name. In a time of unrest and difficulty in our country, I thank you that we are able to proclaim your name. When, when we are able to celebrate a decision regarding life on the one hand and understand at the same time millions of people who are frightened by the implications and I pray that you would help us to celebrate life and to act as Christians to act as you do even in this passage today I pray that you would give us the grace of Jesus to act like the good shepherd that we just read about and it's in Christ's name we pray amen you see I, I, I've been thinking a lot about this we we um, I grew up in a time in an era where everything was if you just show Jesus to be friendly everyone will accept him and I remember when I was a youth pastor shortly after talking to, shortly after I was a youth pastor, talking to somebody from group publishing who said that many young people's idea of God is, is um, God is cosmic butler and Jesus is nice. And the problem is our passage today shows that that's not true. That Jesus puts demands on us that maybe we don't like. That on our own, we love darkness rather than light. And today's passage is a reminder to us, a challenge to us. And we see this confrontation, like I said, in three different groups. And the first is that we see it in the malice of the mob. Verse 1 told us that Pilate had Jesus flogged. And this probably takes place after, as the other Gospels, it's kind of hard to piece together all of the, the what's going on in Jesus' trials because each gospel writer takes a part of it to show what they want to show. And this probably takes place after Jesus has returned from Herod Antipas. Most commentators think that Pilate is doing this as a ploy. He wants Jesus released, and he feels like, okay, if I do this, maybe they'll, they'll let him go. But now the stakes have been raised, and there is, frankly, bloodlust in the air. Luke tells us that Herod's soldiers treated Jesus with contempt and sent him back to Pilate in an elegant robe. And Pilate's soldiers, being soldiers, joined in and one-upped their counterparts. They fashioned a crown, probably from a date palm, and probably, unlike that image, with thorns at least this long. And the irony here is that date palm had been used for a very different purpose just days before. 
the fronds, the palm fronds that were laid down before Jesus as he rides into the city? Same tree. And the crown is likely designed to imitate the crowns of divine or semi-divine figures that you find on coins of the era. And in verses 6 and 15, we hear when Pilate brings Jesus out to the people, crucify him, crucify him. And we don't know exactly who is in the crowd. At least some of the members of the Sanhedrin are there, the chief priests, group of Jewish rulers. But the other gospels let us know that there are more than just them there. In Matthew 27 and Mark 15, we are told that the leaders whip the crowd up into a frenzy. And so many of the very same people that had hailed Jesus as Messiah less than a week before now have turned because that's what fickle crowds do, right? And quickly they become a mob. And it's a sad fact of human psychology that all too often we easily move from crowd to mob. And that even people whose causes we agree with can become dangerous like that. Because the mob will do things that the individual would never do on their own. The mob wants what the mob wants. And even those who had hailed Jesus as Messiah and King can be turned. And malice reigns and cruelty and mocking come quickly. And the message of Jesus is a message that we need, but all too often it is not the one that we want because we want what we want. And what do we do when we are confronted by a truth that we do not want or do not understand? We dismiss and we deny it and we ridicule it because if we mock it, we don't have to take it seriously. We don't have to confront the cruelty in our own hearts and we don't have to recognize that a king will always, always make a claim on us. And the soldiers and the crowds became a mob. And the mob is a threat. It's a threat to peace. It's a threat to the powerful. And Pilate is in Jerusalem, after all, because these kinds of mobs are a real threat. You see, his main residence was not in Jerusalem. It was in Caesarea on the coast, about 50, 53 miles north and west. And he came to Jerusalem during the festivals because there was a constant problem in this rebellious province and the potential for mobs. In fact, it seems that Barabbas, the person who gets released, was just such a figure. He was an insurrectionist and a murderer. And mobs are tricky and unpredictable things, which leads us to remember that the people confronted by Jesus... The people who don't like Jesus may not always agree with one another. It's not like there is a universal and agreed upon thing. There's different groups of people, which leads us to the second. And that's the misgivings of the mighty. You see, mobs happen in places that matter, right? You don't have mobs in cornfields as a general rule, right? They happen in cities. And in this case, it's outside of Pilate's residence in Jerusalem. Probably the Antonia Fortress, which is sitting right next to the temple. 
This is the center of all that happens in Jerusalem. And Pilate has already shown, we saw this last week, Pilate believes Jesus is not a threat to the Roman Empire. He's not guilty. And Luke tells us that he tried to avoid the issue altogether. That's that Herod Antipas thing. You see, Pilate finds out, oh wait, you're from Galilee? You're Herod's problem. Go see him. He had tried to avoid it. And Herod, we're told, was in town probably for Passover, just like Pilate. And he wanted to be amused. He wanted Jesus to do miracles for him, parlor tricks. And he mocked Jesus. But he sent him back to Pilate. I'm not letting you off the hook. You deal with it. And Pilate doesn't believe that Jesus is a threat to Rome. Jesus has already told him this. My kingdom is not of this world. And so he has him flogged, trying to get the mob to be placated, but it doesn't work. You see, Pilate has a problem. And we don't know a lot about Pilate, but what we do know paints a complicated picture. You see, he's not a nice guy at all. He seems to be at once efficient and practical and brutal. He is one of the longest-serving governors in Judea, over 10 years. That didn't happen very often. See, he was put in a place about 26 A.D. and lasted to 36 A.D. And if you last that long, you've got to be at least somewhat comp uh, competent. And the Romans had this very interesting system. You see, they would conquer all these people, and they would impose Roman law, but they would mostly let the native people, the conquered peoples, govern themselves. About 10 years after Jesus' death and crucifixion, the Romans would invade Britain. And the, the Roman Britons were mostly not Romans at all. They were Britons who adopted Roman ways, except for a few. And that's exactly what happens here. You see, Rome has this strange relationship with the people, and it's even worse for Pilate. Because at the time of Jesus' death, traditionally this is either in AD 30 or AD 33, and probably it's the latter, but we're not certain. Pilate is in a really precarious position. You see, we know that he, ha from other uh, historians, we know he's antagonized the Jews. They've complained to Rome about him. He put golden shields with images of the emperor as divine he hung them up around Jerusalem. And those are idols, and the Jews were having none of that. He had coins minted that said that the emperor was divine. Problems. And we don't know exactly when these happened, but the Jews were not happy with him. And there's something else that the timing shows is a problem for Pilate. A reason why we see why does Pilate go back and forth? Why does this Roman governor just give them what they want? Because, you see, the emperor at the time is a guy named Tiberius. 
And Tiberius, being the emperor, could do what he wanted, and for a period of time had retired to the island of Capri in the Mediterranean. Not a bad gig if you can get it. I wouldn't mind that myself. And he left the governance, the chief administrator of the entire emperor to, uh, empire to this guy named Sejanus. S-E-J-A-N-U-S. You tell me how to pronounce it? I'm not sure. And there was, as there always is among Roman emperors, a lot of intrigue. And his chief administrator may well have been involved in poisoning his own son and heir. And, and Tiberius gets warned. Hey, your guy here is plotting to overthrow you. And in 31 AD, Tiberius comes back, has him executed, and starts executing a bunch of people that are his friends. Oh, and by the way, Pilate got his job from Sejanus. He was a friend. And so he's afraid. If they complain to Caesar, as they said, we have no king but Caesar, if you say this man is a king, you are no friend of Caesar, well, that puts you in a bad spot. So what do you do if you believe someone is innocent and you don't particularly care or like the people that you're governing? Your job is to uphold Roman law and make sure that there's peace at the same time. Your political position is in jeopardy and you are faced with restless local leaders, a would-be king, and a religious festival that's known to cause problems. Pilate is in a bad, bad spot here. Keep the peace in a rebellious province and administer justice. You'd like to keep doing this job that you've been doing. And to say that Pilate had misgivings about this entire situation is an understatement. And we saw it last week, and we see it again today. And so he flogs Jesus, and he brings him out. Behold the man, in verse 5. Beaten, bruised, flogged, mocked a crown of thorns, and a purple robe in mockery of kingship. He is, Pilate is, in effect saying, this guy is no threat to Rome. I know it, and you know it. What kind of king is this? There's no basis for the charges against him. And what is the response of the mob? Crucify him. His ploy to placate the crowds has failed. He doesn't like these Jews. He doesn't trust them. And he's a political operator himself. He knows something more is at work here, even if he doesn't understand exactly what's going on. So he calls their bluff. You do it, he says. You crucify him. And he knows full well they can't. It's against Roman law. And so the real truth comes out. What do they say? We have a law. He claimed to be the Son of God. He has to die. Ah. Strictly speaking, that's not true. Because that term, Son of God, was used for Jewish kings. It was used for angelic beings. 
And that, of course, is proof in and of itself that the Jewish leaders knew Jesus was claiming something more. They knew he was claiming to be God. And a lot of people today will say Jesus never claimed to be God. But the Jewish people of the day knew that's exactly what he was claiming. You see, Jesus demands that we acknowledge him. And it's at this point that Pilate's mood takes a turn. He brings Jesus back inside. We're, we're told he's even more afraid. And it's about this time, or perhaps just a little bit before, just a little bit after, that the other Gospels tell us that his wife, who is Jewish, sends him a message. Do not have anything to do with that innocent man. She had a dream that there was going to be a problem. You see... Pilate is, like many people, quite superstitious. Where are you from, he asks. And John is strongly indicating that's not an issue of, are you from Galilee, right? But are you from heaven? The ancient world believed that the gods walked among men. We know this from Acts, we see it in Acts 14, when Paul and Barnabas, the early church missionaries, are in Lystra, which is in sort of eastern Turkey today. Greek-speaking area, Greek culture, and they are mistaken for Zeus and Hermes. Pilate is no doubt afraid that there is more to Jesus than meets the eye. There was this very kind of nebulous idea in the ancient world of the divine man. Somebody who may not quite be a god, but may be a god, definitely has connections with the gods, and he's just had him flogged. So he is afraid. But Pilate is still who he is, right? A powerful, arrogant leader in the greatest empire on earth because, well, that's what they fancied themselves anyway. They have no idea that at the same time the Han Dynasty in China is every bit as big as the Roman Empire ever was. Don't you know who I am? Pilate asks. Don't you see my power? I can free you or kill you. And so despite his misgivings, despite his fear, his conflict and his belief that Jesus is not guilty, Pilate backs down. The possible problems of some sort of divine man are significant, but frankly, I got bigger fish to fry because the truth is, as he said last week when he asked what is truth, the truth is what I say it is. The truth is my situation, and I have to worry about Rome, and I have to worry about these schemers and the peace so that I can keep going because if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. It was a direct threat to him to go to Caesar. And he's right to be worried because if that 33-year date is right, in three years, Tiberius will recall him to Rome because he puts down an armed rebellion of Samaritans. It's unclear what happened to Pilate after that case. Tiberius dies as he's, he's going back to Rome. And we don't know, maybe he just retires. But the early Christian historian Eusebius, 4th century, early 300s, says tradition at that time was that the new emperor Caligula 
ordered him to commit suicide. He's in a precarious place. He can't ignore Jesus. This king of the Jews may not be guilty, but Pilate can't afford to make the Jewish leaders mad. And too often, like Pilate, many today take his path. We don't think badly about Jesus. We're not guilty. But we're not strong enough to choose his way over our own safety, our own livelihood. And the truth is not what's at stake. Comfort and security and power are. And the malice of the crowds is not at play, but self-preservation is. So Pilate gives in, like the crowds. And even though he knows it's happening, he succumbs to the manipulation by the movers and shakers. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the chief priests, the rabbis, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, we think of them as solely as religious leaders. And in our world, religious leaders don't have a lot of cultural influence but in that day, it was a very different thing. They were more. They were the movers and shakers. We might call them the influencers of the day. The biggest names on the Sanhedrin would have all had their own Twitter and Instagram pages. They were older guys, so they probably wouldn't have been on TikTok. That's just my thought. Greek culture and Roman law are everywhere even in Palestine, but Jewish national identity is dominated by the temple right next door, and they are the leaders. You see, they held sway in different ways. The Pharisees were the religious leaders for the common people, and the Sadducees were largely priests, and they held sway on the events and the festivals and the cultural identity of the, of the day. And together they had significant cultural power. And Pilate knows he's being manipulated. We can see it in the way that he responds to the Jewish leaders. We can see it because of the way that he has interacted with them in other contexts. And we can see it especially when he tells them to crucify Jesus. And still they push. If one approach won't work, they'll try another. They whip up the crowds. They know that Rome is worried about insurrection. And so they manipulate the custom of releasing a prisoner. And they get an actual insurrectionist and murderer back. That's who Barabbas is. And then the final trump card. You are no friend of Caesar. That was likely an actual title, friend of Caesar, an honor bestowed, and it signified both service to the empire and connection. And one that Pilate, there's some that believe there was a gold ring that signified that, and they were probably looking at it. And it was a, a title that Pilate had to believe was not on the surest of ground right now. So they pressed because they would not submit their power, their vision of Jewish, Judaism and Jewish identity to this upstart Galilean. He had challenged them one too many times. He had called them whitewashed tombs and threatened their money, the money made by the chief priests and all those booths in the, tab in the tabernacle of the temple. He had to go. And while Pilate reaffirms his power over Jesus, Jesus' response is significant. What does Jesus say? We're going to look at the question of Pilate's power in a moment, but first notice the second part of verse 11. The one who handed me over is, to you is guilty of the greater sin. 
You see, Jesus doesn't absolve Pilate's guilt, but he does make it clear there's a greater guilt, a greater culprit. He's probably talking about Caiaphas here. He leaves it a little bit nebulous, and I think that's on purpose because what he's because Caiaphas stands for this entire system who has betrayed him. He be, he is the the figurehead for the Sanhedrin, the head of the snake, so to speak. And the issue is less about the specific person than the fact of betrayal. You see, King Jesus has challenged them, and they, rather than repent and follow him, have doubled down and manipulated the crowds and the legal system too so that they can get what they want. Doesn't absolve Pilate's guilt or the crowd's guilt, but it makes their crimes worse. And we shouldn't be surprised when the crowds or the powers that be, whether they are legal or cultural or religious, balk at bowing the knee to Jesus. We should not be surprised because he demands the throne that we do not want to give. One person and only one person can be on the throne. And most of us can safely say, oh, I don't fall into one of those categories. I'm not like those people, at least not consciously. But we can fall prey to those ways of thinking. And there is a bigger danger for most of us Christians, and that is that we look down our nose at those people, whomever they are. I would never do that. I'm better. No, we're not. And of course, we never say the I'm better part out loud. But we can get arrogant and defensive and we can get mean when we should be mirroring our Messiah and King. How do we avoid looking at this passage as simply a bit of interesting history? That's what happened. Look at those bad people how do we avoid feeling superior? Because it's a real danger. No, we cannot sacrifice ourselves on behalf of a sinful humanity. Only Jesus can do that. But we call ourselves by His name. That's what being a Christian is. We are called to be like Him. That's what He taught His disciples in the final hours in the upper room and in His prayer. In John 15 to 17. You see, Jesus prayed that they, the disciples, that we would be one. As he and the Father are one, that we would be like him. This is what he taught and what he lived right up to the end. He has shown his innocence. He has shown what kind of kingdom his is. And now he reminds Pilate of his power. Who has real power? What does he say? You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. What does Jesus do? He does it in a way that Pilate has a choice here. Pilate can decide to look at that and say, oh, he's talking about Rome and the power they have. Or he can take it as the power coming from God. You see, Jesus doesn't demand that Pilate bows the knee. He gives him the choice. What will you do? Do you choose the truth? You asked the question, Pilate. You didn't really want the answer, so I'll give you the choice. The answer is in front of you. Will you choose it 
Will you choose the deeper truth of who I am, of what I'm doing, or will you choose the surface truth of the empire and self and power in the moment? And so perhaps those responses from outside of the church, of the mob and the misgivings and the manipulation are not so far off from our own after all, even if we are on the inside. Because we can succumb to malice if we're not mirroring King Jesus. And we can waffle and allow our misgivings to be overcome by instinct for self-preservation. It's easy, not hard. And we too can be corrupted to do evil in the name of good when we see our way of life threatened. That's exactly what the Jewish leaders did. And Jesus gives us the same choice he gives Pilate. He doesn't demand that we follow. As disciples, as with the disciples from the very beginning of John, follow me. Jesus doesn't beg. He doesn't argue. He doesn't retaliate. And he could have done any or all of those things in this situation. It is a travesty of justice, and he would have been within his rights to do any of those things. Instead, what does he do? He tells the truth. He doesn't back down from telling the truth, but he's not belligerent in the way that he does it either. He doesn't demand. He goes willingly to sacrifice himself. And he is handed over to be crucified for us. You see, Jesus was betrayed by more than just Judas. He was betrayed at every level. The crowds who had just proclaimed him Messiah and King less than a week before. The culture, the religious leaders, his own disciples have deserted him. What would you do in his situation? If you were faced with this unjust trial, on my own, forget it. They can't see. They won't even try. I'm done. Why should I? He could have walked away. Because you see, on my own, I am the crowds. I am the leadership, whether secular or religious. And so are you. But thanks be to God, we are not alone. And we have never been alone. We have never been on our own. He is, as we read earlier in John 10, the good shepherd who is always there for us. And as John said from the very beginning, in him was life. And that light was, life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, even here at this low, low point. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, John told us. And we have seen His glory. That picture of Jesus' flogged is a picture of Jesus' glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And that is King Jesus. And His command is simple. Repent. And His invitation is follow me.